so uh, it, it's one of the founding ideas of this show that uh, we bring stories into complex tech spaces, and these stories are so riveting and interesting, and judging from our selection so far, mostly filled with incest and murder, um, that people are drawn to understanding complex technical issues, right? Um, right? I don't know what you just said. No? Maybe? So I thought, you know what's almost as, as much fun as literature uh, is literary history. Let's <laughs> in case in case you were too There's entertained. No, no debate from me. Yeah, yeah. So uh, I want to talk for for a second about uh, Walter Scott and how this helps us understand the Internet of Things. I believe it's Sir Walter Scott. Sir Walter Scott. Oh my goodness! Of course, that's actually re relevant to what we'll be talking about. So right, don't steal his honorific. Yeah, Sir Walter Scott. He's really. I don't think he he has done as well. In, in kind of in memory as he did during his own time period. Um, he was like a god. He was like, if you took Shakespeare and J.K. Rowling and Charles Dickens and kind of balled them up into a single author, that's sort of how uh, England and lots of the world thought about him in the late 18th, early 19th century. Huge, really? huge, huge deal. Yeah, Walter Scott, he, he wrote these novels called the Waverly Novels. It, be, it became this way of like thinking about nationality and and uh, sort of modern theater and what the novel could do and historical romance and et cetera, et cetera. And he became insanely wealthy off of this. Um, in so ways, insanely wealthy as an author type money or insanely wealthy as like just insanely wealthy type money? Like insanely, like a, like a wealthy wealther, wealtherson type. Um, <laughs> <laughs> oh, oh, that category. Yeah, yeah. Okay. It's, a, it's, it's a complex term. But uh, J.K. Rowling is probably the closest thing we have to a modern example of this, of, of someone, like, once those movie rights money hit, and it was just, like, Scrooge mm. McDuck pool of money kind of stuff. Um, right. With, right. The, with the massive, massive difference that nowadays, being a billionaire is, like, a thing. Like, there's a bunch of them... You can invest in things. There are things you can buy with billions of dollars. Uh, economies operate at that scale. When Walter mm -hmm. Scott became this rich, there was not much for him to do with that money um, because we're like in early industrialism. And so Walter Scott, he goes and he starts, uh, he buys the one thing you can buy with lots and lots of money in the late 18th century, which is castles. <laughs> so, um, Whoa. All right. Okay, yep. so let me, okay. let me get this straight. So Sir Walter Scott, god of, I guess, 18th century publishing, such yeah. as it is. <laughs> yeah. He, he makes a bunch of money off of the advent of, of publishing, money. which is the rise of, like, I guess the Gutenberg press or whatever, and he goes out and buys castles. Yeah, essentially, it's, it, the way to think about it, the easiest way to think about how, how incredible Walter Scott was as a phenomenon is to think, like, imagine that someone invented Facebook, but, like, no one knew about, like, pictures of cats. You know? <laughs> that, right. That there was this so, medium. So Walter Scott? Yeah, Walter Scott is, like, the grumpy cat of, <laughs> of publishing. <laughs> that, uh... Ah. He created... So Walter Scott, as, as, as adorable cat photo... Yeah. Or video yeah. is that's that's your analogy. Yep, yep, yep. I have a PhD. So <laughs> All right. Well, I think I think this will kick us off and we'll see where this one goes. Yeah, it's going to be really good. I, I swear this will No, I don't swear it will make sense. I I I should never do that. But 
Um, what's so fascinating <laughs> about it, though, is, is that essentially there's, there's this channel, like uh, mass market publishing, lending libraries, and the production of enormous amounts of text, and uh, in, in incredibly rapidly rising rates of literacy. So people are hungry for, for content. You now have the ability to deliver an enormous amounts of content continuously. You just don't have content. Um, hmm. And Walter Scott steps into that void. Uh, he he's and weirdly because he makes all this money and then starts buying castles, it then forces him to continue writing because his castles are so expensive that <laughs> he has to keep on pumping out these novels for the rest of his life. Um, and it really changes the way literature works. It changes blah blah blah. It changes a whole bunch of things. But this got me thinking about the Internet of Things a whole lot. About all right, wait, 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 wait. Yep. What? Yep. See, we just see, went from. We just went. Wait. All right. All right, keep going, keep going. That basically, it strikes me. So, how does how does how does Sir Walter Scott, a la uh, Grumpy Cat Photos, makes yep. you think of the Internet of Things? Well, because it strikes me that there's this this profound new platform. There's this new way of engaging these old technologies. Obviously, stories exist for a long time before Walter Scott. Castles obviously exist. Money exists. But there's sort of this paradigmatic moment, and then he's the presence there. He's the the one that suddenly makes ah. this whole machine start running, um, and it got me thinking about like, w- what's the deal with the Internet of Things? Because it seems like it, it either is going to change every aspect of the world, or you know, just produce a bunch of kind of cat pictures. Hi, this is Darian Bates, and this is Dr. Tobias Wilson Bates, and this is the stories we tell our robots podcast about how we make our technology and how our technology makes us i think what i who i would like to bring to this discussion is um someone who's maybe more of an expert on Internet of Things. And if you don't know what Internet of Things is, uh, I'm not going to define it right now. I will wait for our guest to join us. Um, but but I think that uh, rather than us speculating wildly uh, and trying to make up actually a, a semi-accurate definition of Internet of Things, um, let's bring someone else on the pod who has a, a profound expertise, or at least a significant expertise, on what the Internet of Things is, uh, and really, in this case, since you're talking about um, really kind of at a production level, let's, let's talk about industrial Internet of Things. Let's, let's, let's go even more refined into industrial Internet of Things, IIoT, uh, and bring on um, none other than Mr. Jefferson Bates. He's a product manager at a leading industrial Internet of Things platform. Um, and he is a, uh, he, he's all about basically product connectivity and application enablement. That, and uh, I think we'll understand that more uh, after he talks than uh, on my introduction. So without further ado, I thought uh, we would bring uh, Mr. Jefferson Bates on. And maybe he could steer us maybe a little bit away from uh, Sir Walter Scott. And maybe I'm a pretty bit sure closer. he'll mostly just agree with everything I've said, but let's see. <laughs> <laughs> well, we shall see. So without, without further ado, uh, I'd like to welcome onto the pod uh, Mr. Jefferson Bates. Hey, guys. So um, I don't know if you just heard. I'm actually not entirely sure what just happened at the beginning of our podcast. <laughs> yeah, literary um, history happened. 
Yes. Yeah. No. I I, I heard and and I I like the analogy. Um, I think uh, it's an important question. Um, are we going to get something worthwhile out of the Internet of Things, or is it going to be uh, the industrial equivalent of uh, of cat videos? So uh, I, yeah, I I am on. I'm with Toby on this one actually. Um, and uh, see, <laughs> see, I I knew it. I absolutely knew it. Um, wow. But, Maybe you could start by explaining what the industrial Internet of Things is, though. Great. So, so Internet of Things, broadly defined, uh, I think probably a larger portion of the population has an understanding of just Internet of Things writ large. And that includes things like the connected self, so, uh, you know, Fitbit. Uh, it includes things like uh, home automation, where I can open my door remotely or I can turn on my heat remotely. Um, that's all, you know, that's, that's worthwhile, um, to discuss if, if you guys are looking for additional, uh, podcast ideas, but, uh, unfortunately I won't be that much help on that front, uh, since I focus on the industrial internet of things, which can really be, uh, divided into two separate camps. Um, and one is, uh, I, I actually, I think it makes sense, uh, to, call one of those camps uh, the Industrial Internet of Things, uh, which I would define as a, a product manufacturer connecting a product. Uh, and that enables uh, some, some use cases that uh, previously weren't enabled. Um, so so uh, think about a product manufacturer prior to the IoT. They would create a product. Uh, send it off into the wild. The customer would start, you know, it starts operating in a factory, say it's a pump. The customer would start using it. And if uh, it ran into any issues, they would call the manufacturer for service. Uh, and that would be the only kind of touch point uh, with, the, with the product. So if, if the industrial internet of things is, is connecting a product, then industry 4.0, uh, which is kind of uh, a nod to the different manu- or industrial revolutions. Uh, mm. And I, I should know the industrial revolutions by heart, but <laughs> you know, essentially it's saying this is the next, uh, industry, industry 4.0 is the next industrial revolution, and that's all about I own a factory, I'm connecting it, I'm, you know, I'm connecting all the assets in it for the purposes of kind of operations awareness as well as uh, product in or process improvement and manufacturing is is all about um, processes and improving those processes is the way that you make more things better and more cheaply so those are those are kind of the two axes so when you say connecting a product you mean essentially allowing a production a producer of some sort of factory machine being able to connect directly to that product uh, in the live environment. So that machine is now sitting in a factory somewhere and somebody can connect to that machine and say, this machine is broken or this machine needs to be updated or this machine is, you're using it wrong. Right, right, exactly. So I'm, you know, sealed air, for example, and I make packaging equipment, um, the, you know, the bubble wrap that uh, is relatively ubiquitous. I want to be able to, you know, from from Sealed Air headquarters, I want to be able to see how the customer is using that product, uh, and that's going to, uh, you know, enable me to offer that 
as a service back to the back to the customer, just a view of how they're using it. Uh, I also want to get that information because it enables me to make decisions on the next generation of products. You know, if, if the customers are using the product in a, in a different way than I expected, I might want to make some changes to the, to the product in the future. Uh, and then also it allows me to, if the product, if I can see that the, the product is breaking, I can, you know, at the very least give, give the customer a heads up. Uh, and mm. at the best, I can actually, since it's connected, I can remote into that product and, you know, potentially fix it without having to send uh, an engineer, which is always expensive. Um, the last thing, mm-hmm. I can also send firmware updates. So if I have some security updates or, um, you know, new functionality that I want to push out to the customer that I would otherwise need to rely on the customer to, to, um, to install, I can, I can do that as well. So, that, so that's, that's what you would define as as kind of classic IIoT. Yeah. I don't know how I don't know how classic that can be, but <laughs> maybe less classic than Sir Walter Scott. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> oh, it is worth touching briefly on the the potentially for industrial revolutions. I actually think it's a good <laughs> because I learned about that. Um, that uh, it's it's there's some debate about whether there have been like more than one of them so far. Because there's a lot of uh, there's there's a lot of incentive to say that an industrial revolution has happened, you know, uh, because mm-hmm. it it certainly helps you push like a certain kind of product. So it, I one imagines that there could be four, insofar as the first one would be something along the lines of steam power, the second one would be something along the lines of electricity, the third one would be something along the lines of information technologies and the information explosion, and then the fourth one would hypothetically be where we are now in this uh mm-hmm. in this space but it's also worth saying yeah yeah that like these were we, these were profoundly artificial that like people pushing steam power played all kinds of like ridiculous political tricks in order to get railroads to replace horses as like the dominant mode of transportation in england at the very least uh and then you could the same could be said about a lot of these other technological shifts so um that so are, you, are, you, are you besmirching the steam power lobby <laughs> they, boy, they were tough. They were a tough lobby. They did things like uh, they they created this like massive, massive nationalistic fervor to to say that like we were being overcharged for French corn and we had to put tariffs on them. Things that are maybe familiar right now as we have uh, trade wars or some <laughs> kind of thing. And uh, and then later they they had this whole kind of war over time because of course trains are relatively useless if you're not operating in the same time zone or uh, along the same oh. kind of like unified time zone. So. They really did like immense, immense acts of political violence in order to achieve these ends, which they then called revolutions to make them seem palatable. Huh. I, but yeah, I did not. I did not realize that that the uh, the industrial revolution, as defined by the advent of the steam engine, was essentially a, a a lobbying gimmick. Yeah. Yeah. Absolutely. You know, like, and and, and you could say, huh. like, which seems to happen often in tech, like once they. Once they'd kind of forced their model onto the nation and the nation became dependent on their model, then they could retroactively say, we were always already going to evolve to this model because look, here we are. This is all to say, this is, I, I'm, I'm so sorry for that tangent. That was, we can cut that out. But, you, but there's, a, there's a sense that you've, you've just essentially given us what, what you say is 
IIoT in sort of the maybe less glamorous way. And then there is Industry 4.0, which we've just decided is the latest lobbying effort by the Steam industry <laughs> um, to, to bring Steam back. Yep. No, but all kidding aside. So what is Industry 4.0 or 4.0 if you're from my yeah. part of the country? Yeah, absolutely. So so uh, the there is a lot of skepticism in the factory about the IoT. Um, there's a lot of, you know, in, the, in trade publications are all pushing IoT, all pushing Industry 4.0. And so uh, just to start to say there's, there's a lot of skepticism around it because factories have been connected for years um, since the advent of the programmable logic controller, uh, which is just a, a little computer that, or an industrialized computer that automates a, a process. The, the simplest example is uh, think of a trash compactor. This is how it was first explained to me. Uh, think of a trash compactor and it has a button on it and it also doesn't want to compact if somebody's hand is in the trash compactor. So the, the computer, the PLC, uh, controls the, or it contains the logic to say, compress if the button is, pr is pushed uh, but also don't compress if the button is pushed and uh, somebody's hand is in the trash compactor. So, <laughs> yeah. Oh, nice. Yeah. No. It's, I, I it's, feel like uh, that morality is a lot simpler than like the car, the whole car not hitting people or going off the cliff or whatever that thing yeah. is that you've talked about in the past. Toby. Yeah. <laughs> MIT's morality machine. Yeah, that's a different... Right, right. Don't crush hands in the trash compactor is a solid... Uh, that's a solid morality it's, principle. It's one that all of us can get behind, frankly. <laughs> <laughs> exactly. Except for the robotic hand manufacturer lobby. <laughs> Those guys. Uh, <laughs> anyway, go on. <laughs> so, um, so, and they're essentially computers, so you can connect to them. And, and uh, there are products... Uh, called um, Human Machine Interface, which is essentially you walk up to a machine, it has a PLC on it, and the PLC is telling the Human Machine Interface, uh, which is basically is just really a screen, what's going on, so you can actually operate the machine. And then if you aggregate those things together, a bunch of HMIs on different machines and different uh, lines together, then you get a, a SCADA system, which stands for Supervisory Control and Data Acquisition. Uh, and the uh, thing that that is most likened to or is is a spot-on definition of that is imagine Homer Simpson in his little room where he controls or doesn't control the entire nuclear plant. That's a, that's a SCADA system. So nice. there's, nice. there's... That's the thing with all the buttons and the knobs and the levers. Yeah, and you can see generally you get a sort of a stylized view of the of the plant and what's what's happening, and, and if you see something going wrong, you can you can control it from there. So you know you talk about oh everything's connected and it's revolutionary. Most uh, most operators, most uh, factory managers say, hey, you know we've been connected for for a long time. So what is different about Industry 4.0 that that um, is you know leading to this or is going to lead to this promised uh, step change? And I would say there's really two two things. One is the the advent of machine learning, uh, which you guys have covered a fair amount on the on the podcast, and, and we can go into more more detail. But the other the other uh, technology or or development that is enabling different use cases is the ability to get that information out of the the factory into the hands of folks who are making business decisions or really democratizing that data. You know, 
in a in the SCADA world, the SCADA engineers has have access to that data, but everyone else in the factory who might be able to make use of that use of that data um, is uh, uh, is kind of out of luck unless they make good friends with the SCADA engineers, and then they're just going to get an Excel output, and it's going to be stale by the by the time they start making decisions on it. So, it's about a being able to pl- to apply the type of of horsepower, uh, the compute, I guess, uh, to that data to enable machine learning, um, and also about you know a, a lot of it is um, around being able to get data which was normally on a um, operations network. So a factory, almost every factory is on a separate network than the rest of a company um, for security reasons. Uh, so it's about getting enabling users not on that uh, new users that are on that network and users that are not on that network access access to the data, um, either for just general visibility or for kind of advanced analytics or uh, machine learning. So wait, is everything connected now? Is that the because those security reasons sound pretty good? Yeah, <laughs> exactly. <laughs> Isn't that what stops robots from taking over the world? <laughs> There's. There's a lot of the state of industrial Internet of Things security is definitely definitely in flux. Um, there's a lot of new solutions coming out that, you know, you can say, hey, this is read only, but there uh, are a lot of new solutions coming out saying, hey, this is this is absolutely read only, and and any connectivity solution <laughs> or IoT platform worth worth its salt has the appropriate permission so that you can't, uh, uh, you know. Somebody in the mailroom can't be starting to to uh, change the the line and make something new, <laughs> right? But it sounds like ostensibly somebody somewhere is actually now being empowered to change something. So yeah, I mean, it, if I'm right in saying that, either so if if that is deemed to if the benefit of that is deemed to outweigh the the security risk, then definitely it's it's possible. Uh, but there are also plenty of applications where you're just saying, "Hey, uh, let's let's just give me visibility to the data and not the ability to actually make changes to how machinery is is working on the on the mm. plant floor." Mm. So, mm-hmm. yeah, and I, and well, I so can the, actually so give a give us a couple examples. Yeah, yeah. So one good example comes from um, Hershey. Uh, the and I actually didn't know this, but they are the maker of the Twizzler. Um, oh, and, oh, I didn't know. And one, yeah, yeah. Now you know. So Twizzlers are extruded. Um, you'll be interested to know, um, much like you know, <laughs> plastic or or something, uh, which is probably more similar than we than we all want to admit. Um, mm-hmm. Hershey's gonna love this when it gets back to them. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> hey, exactly. We know we know they uh, listen. So yeah, exactly. So big fans of the pod. So uh, and the weight. It's not a. It's not a very scientific. Well, it is a scientific pro- process, but it's it's a totally variable process. The the weight of the the extruded Twizzler depends on a lot of things like. How much sugar is in the mix? What's the temperature outside? What you know? How? What were the tolerances of the different um, ingredients that went into the recipe? And that's a you know that's an important consideration for Hershey's because if they make Twizzlers that are too light, then they'll get dinged by the FDA for not giving their customers 
enough Twizzler per package of Twizzler. And if it's too heavy, then they're giving away, essentially giving away uh, twiz free Twizzler, um, which hits their, hits their bottom line. Um, so tuning the Twizzler extruder to, to extrude at the right speed so that you have the right weight of Twizzler is important to Hershey. Is that a, mm -hmm. How's that for a setup? Yeah, no, nice. no, no nice. free Twizzlers lunch. Exactly, exactly. That's the the problem statement there. So, uh, a couple of, of engineers at, at Hershey kind of recognized the the problem, and and part of the problem was that they were taking all these measurements manually, and every fifteen minutes, someone was responsible for changing the setting on the extruder so that it would extrude the right weight given the given the settings. So they said, you know, this is this is crazy. Uh, that seems like, uh, you know, a trained ape could do that. We don't have any trained apes, so we have to put a guy on it. Um, and they wanted to they wanted to improve that that process. So what they did was they they took I think it was around fifty variables uh, and sent it up uh, to Azure, uh, Microsoft Azure uh, cloud cloud platform, and applied a machine learning uh, algorithm. I believe it was a random forest uh, to to say, hey, what are what does this process? What are the variables that this process actually depends upon, and and how do we optimize it? So the the algorithm sort of spit out the idea that there are really five variables that that control the the weight, the resulting weight of the the Twizzler, and based on those five variables, they created a, or they, they ha built a model that could change the speed of the extruder every, you know, two or three seconds um, to, to make sure that it had the, uh, the appropriate weight. And, and so it's a, it's a real success story um, around machine learning. And I think it's also really interesting that it was, it was a group of guys who, you know, didn't their bosses didn't ask them to do this? They said they recognized the issue. Uh, they built, they actually built a replica of the process in their basement on their spare time, so that they could, uh, so that they could show their bosses that hey, this actually has a lot of value to it. Um, and then they implemented it. It's now uh, your Twizzlers are now being extruded via machine learning, uh, or thanks to machine learning, and, uh, and they've gone off to, to look at other areas in their, in their factories where they can, they can do something similar. Well, there's a, there's a poem I once read that says, first they came for the Twizzlers, then they came for, wait, what was the... And, uh, and I didn't say anything because I didn't need Twizzlers. Right. <laughs> yeah, right. exactly. That one. That one. <laughs> yes, exactly. This is how the robots take over the world. One candy manufacturing process at a time. What, what strikes me as interesting but also problematic about this is that that's so cool and way to go those people for just like stepping up to do that. Um, but it's like, is, is that is that kind of, I mean, and no offense to Twizzler extrusion, but is, is that sort of the end game? Like just take a, an old process and make it a bit more automated and a bit more efficient? You know, that's that's the interesting thing is I think, you know, uh, that is my antithesis to a cat video, right? Like some something <laughs> in my mind that is, you know, a, a productive solution 
um, a uh, a process improvement and uh, and and well worth uh, the effort of, of doing. I don't I don't know how how it actually affected the the bottom line, but it, you know it was it was worthwhile enough that uh, kind of everyone looked at it and said, oh, hey, this is this is awesome, and we want to continue to roll it out. You know, I think other examples mm-hmm. are. Um, uh, a just uh, a white goods manufacturer uh, was seeing a lot of failures. Can you define a uh, for our listeners? Can you define a white goods manufacturer before we get hate mail? Yeah, sure. <laughs> so, so yeah, good, good point. Twenty eighteen, got to be careful. Uh, so, white white goods are like a refrigerator or a dishwasher or a washing machine. Um, and right after gotcha. this, I am going to the uh to the uh coiner of that term to request a a less <laughs> or more pc <laughs> term. <Exactly>. yeah <laughs> so so this white goods manufacturer they they weld you know they're they're assembling these things they do a lot of welding they were noticing a lot of welding uh, or their their welding equipment was failing and what uh what was happening was that if you there's some setting, and I don't know if n- enough about welding, but there's some setting that if you crank it, uh, if you crank it up, it creates a really high quality weld. So all the welding engineers were saying, well, I you know I don't want to get dinged for the quality of my weld, so I'm gonna just, I'm gonna crank this uh, this setting and have have really high quality welds. But it's it's an optimization Turn it up to eleven. Yeah, exactly, exactly. Th- those welding machines go to eleven. But but it's an optimization <laughs> problem because that being operating at 11 all the time uh, degrades the the machine and and it's really expensive to produce the to, to produce the part that that is required to, to fix the machine so uh, th- again via machine learning they found the proper setting uh, to to have these these welding machines on that that both optimize the the quality of the weld as well as the, the longevity of the, of the welding machine and the other thing that was really cool is they they are able to predict when the welding machine will fail and start manufacturing the the replacement part, you know, with enough lead time so that there's no so that there's no downtime. So oh, that's excellent. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So I think it's it's really these kind of you know quotidian. Uh, I don't know if that's the right word, but but. Uh, you look at, you know, you, you expect, uh, you know, a robot, like an automated vehicle that's, uh, you know, creating you a car, you're 3D printing you a car from scratch or something like that. And that, that stuff is certainly going on. But the, the coolest uh, Industry 4.0 uh, innovations that I've seen are really those more, hey, we, you know, we, we saw a problem on the plant floor, we're intimately familiar with the process, and we went ahead and fixed it with this new technology, and we wouldn't, we wouldn't have been able to do that without, without it. So, um, you know, I think it begs the question, what is your definition of a cat video? Um, and if, and yeah, if, uh, <laughs> yeah, I'm not a cat owner, so yeah, it might be. Uh, <laughs> okay, cat videos can be pretty profound uh, healing, I guess, for people who are really into cats. Yeah, they'd love their cats. I suspect that gets people some some people through their day. Yeah, yeah. Mm-hmm. Maybe we're we're offending so many people by by suggesting that there's low low utility to, to cat videos. I want to pitch some. So so part of what happened with Sir Walter Scott um, to take us way back uh, way back to the to I one or the first industrial revolution um, in that period is that uh, essentially because his content became the central content for lending libraries, which were the major means of media distribution at the, at the time, 
Um, well, let me and, let me just very quickly define a lending library because I'm oh, not sure that sure. a lot of people do. It's you've described it essentially as it's essentially Netflix for books when nothing was ever distributed except for by people walking around with books. Right, right. That's exactly right. That if you weren't in a city, uh, and maybe even if you were in a city, because they were you know not so such networked bodies back then, uh, the way you got goods and services was just like traveling merchant types. Um, mm-hmm. Remember, this is also pre-rail system, so. It really is a, a matter of just like these like kind of circuits of distribution. And you reach a point when books are mass produced enough that like everybody in the country, because of these lending libraries, these people, merchants who, who travel around with like a library of books and then lend them out for a small portion of money, um, everyone can be reading the same book at the same time uh, soon after it's released because of industrial production. Right. Um, and Walter Scott is is the author who enters this. so. Part of what happens is that he changes what nationalism is uh, in, a, in a number of different ways. Um, the, the, the relic that's really hung on from Walter Scott is that he makes kilts a thing. Before that, like, kilts existed historically, but they actually weren't, like, this a, a really, really big deal. There were lots of Scottish clans that didn't have kilts. Scottish clans, like, did or didn't necessarily care about kilt patterns and that kind of thing. But... He, he writes this into his novels in, like, a really deep way. Like, this is Scottishness. And the king, who recognizes this is a form of, like, mass propaganda, gets his portrait drawn of himself wearing a kilt and, and like, kind of takes on the Scottish identity because he realizes he's riding this wave of, of Walter Scott suddenly. Um, and it becomes this whole a new way of thinking about English nationalism. It actually it changes the country massively at the beginning of the 18th century, which is, of course, like, right before they become the sort of world power... Uh, in the, in the sort of truest sense of the world. At, at some point in the 19th century, England controls about a third of the Earth's surface. Um, and it's very important to England that they have a sense of their identity, and Walter Scott is sort of the kernel of that story about what it means to be British, Scottish, you know, have this sort of, like, ancient uh, affiliation. So I, I bring all this up. I, man, man, I, sometimes I hear myself talking, and I'm like, wow, that's a lot of uh, just stuff. But no, 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 no. I, I, this is actually one of the few times I've heard you talking and think, all right, he's got a point. Yeah, did, right? Um, it, yeah, no, you're going. Keep going. Keep no, going. Here we you, go. You've here got we this. go. I'm going to watch you <laughs> land this thing. It changed Do literally it. the world. Like that. Right. Th- that thing. And so I'm, it changed I'm really, the way that the world saw itself. Yeah, yeah. Or, you know, especially given that England then imposed like horrible violence, right. <laughs> colonial violence on the world. Whether it wanted to or not, I, it I believe you're trying to say that England brought civilization. Sorry, um, right? That you that said it wrong. Yeah, oops. Um, but uh, I'm interested in, in hearing Jefferson talk a little bit about how what at first right lending libraries seem kind of quotidian. Oh, you walk around with books, but <laughs> it actually has this right. massive, yeah, yeah. massive, just, massive, massive. You, before you couldn't effect. get a book quickly, and now suddenly you can get a book quickly, and it and it's so now it means that somebody uh, yeah somebody can get their Pilgrim's Progress faster. Right. Or, I mean, more likely Bride of Lammermoor or Waverly or right. Ivanhoe or, right, it's Walter right. Scott. Right. So that, 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 that seems about in line with, uh, with, with, with better calibrated uh, welding machines. Yeah. And so or, or, or more accurately extruded Twizzlers. I, I'm, I'm interested in Jefferson's, like, what's, what's the biggest this, this fourth industrial revolution can look like in terms of downstream effects? Yeah, well, so I think, um, you know, just before we, I, I answer that, I, yeah, I, I think it, it is really these, these you know, simple ideas that, uh, 
I guess not to get too to wax too poetic, but it is you think about the disruptions and it's really these these kind of simple simple ideas like Uber. I feel like everyone's like, ah, why didn't I think of that? Um, yeah, but that, <laughs> yeah, precisely. That notwithstanding, <laughs> uh, so the the reason I really liked your your intro on on. Uh, the importance of creating the content is that there's actually a dynamic now where these large, these massive corporations are building new factories with with connectivity uh, built in. So, so you you get the idea of a, of a factory where everything's connected. It all is going up to Azure uh, or some other massive data storage platform like Hadoop or. Or something like that, and and a lot of the times it is being uh, that's all being done for the sake of connectivity itself. And and there's you know when you ask, hey, what do you you know what, what's the use case? It's hey, you know we're we're enabling these future use cases, the you know the Twizzler use case, the welding use case, preventative maintenance, that type of thing. But it all depends on. You know, it depends on the content creators. It depends on these these engineers who understand the process and can make use of this connectivity to to actually do something do something meaningful. So that's that's it's really dependent on the engineers whether they create meaningful content or or you know our our, our cat video. That's what really grabs me about this this thought. Because so I picture those 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 guys in the uh, the Twizzler factory. I assume that they have a pretty pretty tight relationship with that process and with that machine itself right like they're like they can't be that separate from it if they're going to be building this thing in their basement right yeah no 100 percent. to be able to recreate the the process you gotta really understand it right right and and you know as you point out kind of this innovation i also look at this kind of real question of um, and see, if, I'm going to see if this this analogy works. You know, I'm fascinated by. Uh, I was I was thinking about this conversation about factories, and I went right to kind of what I think of as like one of the iconic. Like, I don't spend a lot of time in factories. I think you probably spend a lot more time in them than I do. Um, but my iconic view of factories is essentially the factory that Charlie Chaplin is working in in modern times. In this uh, kind of his iconic film. It, it, our listeners, if you haven't seen it, you you've seen it in some capacity. You've seen it. It's probably with with Charlie Chaplin wrapped around in a, in a huge gear at one point. <laughs> but there's this um, this amazing scene in it where, in the effort to boost productivity, they this 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 inventor who of course is wearing tails, by the way, which I think is fantastic. He's wearing like a tuxedo with tails, comes in and uh, he's gonna he's gonna figure out how to how to increase productivity by by creating this automated food, you know, this automated feeder for, for people so they can continue using their hands as they're being fed. And, you know, it's a it's a Charlie Chaplin film, so you can you can guess the results. And if you haven't seen it, we'll put a, uh, a link to the a YouTube clip on it. But you're, you're struck by this kind of feeling of like kind of two different ideas about how people relate to factories. On the one hand, you have people who can really who are on the machine who understand how to recreate this thing in their basement. On the other hand, you have this inventor kind of coming in from the outside saying, we're going to make this more um, efficient. We're going, to, we're going to feed the factory workers in this totally incompetent way. Um, and it, it, you feel like on the one hand, you have this, this, this person coming in from the outside who has no idea how a factory works. And on the other hand, you have people who are like deeply tied into just the machine itself. 
And as we start looking at kind of factory innovation, are, are we actually setting up the very conditions to lose kind of innovation? Like by, by moving people out of the factory, by, by I, I guess, you know, the conversation around displacement is, is one kind of conversation. I'm not that interested here to talk about displacement as far as what are you going to do with the workers who are no longer working in the factory, but more about the relationship between people who are in the factory with this kind of deeply connected relationship to the entire process. And as we start moving people, as we start automating factories and moving people out of the processes, do we actually lose the very ability to find that kind of revolutionary content a la Sir Walter Scott um, or, you know, more efficient Twizzler manufacturing uh, than we would have had otherwise? Yeah. So that's, uh, it's an interesting question. I tend to think that if you can, the, the, the key is having somebody who understands the problem that you're that you're trying to solve, and that goes from you know the the purpose of the of the company. You know, we want to build a, a product. Generally, in manufacturing, we want to build a a product faster, a, a better product faster with less uh, defects uh, and and lower lower cost. And you know, as you as you go as you get closer and closer to the to the machines, you get more and more you get more and more granular in terms of your your understanding of the of the problems that that need to be solved. Um, you know, I think when you get to the most granular piece, you get to the idea of these machine whispers. Um, is mm. I guess a term that I just made up. Uh, <laughs> I was about to say I really <laughs> like that one. <laughs> and and that person is. Uh, you know, in factories all over the world, you have these these people who stand by the machines day in and day out, and they they know how to tune the machine correctly, um, based on you know smell, vibration, sights, feel, you know, cosmic disruptance that 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 type of thing. And and there's you know, it, it's it's great in that you know it's it's. Uh, it's a solid manufacturing job, but on the other hand, it's it's not great because you know that person can only work uh, one shift out of the day or you know whatever. Uh, and when that person retires, which a lot of them are about to, there's uh, you, you know that that knowledge transfer or that knowledge can only be gained by by long experience. So. You know, and, and they're solving. So, the, in terms of going back to this concept of what are the pro- what's the problem that they're trying to solve? They're solving the problem of you know the the that piece that's being manufactured at that exact moment does not have defects and it is goes as as quickly as as possible. Um, right. That is, you know, that's a problem that that can readily be solved by by machine learning, and. You know, I, I think when you you know this this kind of does wade into the the idea of displacement is oh if you if you do that with machine learning does that person um, person still have a job? Uh, you know, I, I think if you look at uh, the problems that need to be solved or the 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 different things that uh, any given factory can do to to produce a product better, faster, and and more cheaply. 
there is no there's no end to to those there's you know the the thought that we're going to solve this problem and then we're not going to need somebody to to solve problems anymore is is absolutely a a fallacy i you know i you just think of your own your own job you know if if they replaced right. you with or if if they said hey you don't have to do this this piece of your job anymore you would <laughs> you would absolutely find value added added things to things to do so you know right. i think i think that um and this is this is the kind of the always the argument around around displacement is is that person is then uh, freed up to solve a higher order problem because there's there's definitely in a factory higher order problems around than than is this machine running well at this particular moment in moment in time. I, I think that is a uh, finding finding people to solve higher order problems and making sure that we, you know we're optimizing our use of uh, human capital and human resources as well as we can. Sorry, I guess but, that, that didn't directly answer your answer your question, which was does that does the the inno- does the innovation go away? And and I think that you know when you start thinking about those those higher order problems, that's that's really where the the innovation is. You know, I, I don't think bec- the the mere fact of knowing how to run a, a machine well based on vibration, you know, cosmic disturbance and all that jazz is is particularly particularly lends itself to to uh, innovation. I think it's it's really those those engineers who are thinking about process and and trying to solve these these complex issues. That's that's really where the innovation happens and. And the whole idea of Industry 4.0 is is all about enabling those people and and uh, and making sure that they have a common set of set of tools. Well, let me go to let me go back to that question that Toby Toby asked because I think it's a I think it's a really interesting one, which is, um, you know, what is the extreme version? So I feel like you know it's it's very easy to get lost in the incrementalism of optimization. Right, making a, you know, making sure that your weights are consistent on some sort of um, kind of process manufacturing um, system is is great. I mean, like it's. I mean, our our world is is functional based upon just optimization and like incremental improvements. But where would you go in terms of what is the what is the gosh, what, what is, is the what is apocalypse the... or utopia? <laughs> what? Yes. Nicely done. All right. Yes. You're right. <laughs> yeah. Thank you. We need that. Uh, on a on a scale of one to ten, ten being utopia, <laughs> one being apocalypse. Uh, where do you think this is going? How would you describe that? I right. That's the that's the spiel. Yeah. That's you're right. Absolutely. I, I like that. I keep trying to reinvent like our rubric every time. <laughs> <laughs> and you're just like, no, no. It's a one to ten scale, Darian. Yeah. Yeah. We don't need to make. We don't need to extrude this more efficiently. We got it. So, so yeah, so I think, you know, the other piece of, of or there, there's other, pe- there's certainly other applications and other pieces of machine learning. Just, just to give one more, one more example, I saw uh, a demo of a technology um, where it was using a, a machine learning API from, from Microsoft that uh, could detect objects and emotions. And, you know, they, we were looking at deploying it in a, in a factory setting where you've got a machine and you're taking a video of that machine and the, the API is constantly evaluating uh, the video and you know if you take your phone out it says no you can't use the phone next to the machine 
which is like kind of scary. And then the really scary <laughs> part was it can it can recognize your emotions in like in absolute real time. And so it can say, hey, you're angry. You're not allowed to operate that machine when you're angry. And that starts to get into... What, what if I just have resting yeah. angry face? Uh, yeah. I, I like how you <laughs> PC-ified that. <laughs> I'm sorry. I can't let you do that. Exactly. <laughs> like some of, the, some of the applications get into really, you know, unsettling, unsettling areas. So I, I think that the logical extreme of it is, is absolutely this... You know, you could you could make a case that, you know, machine learning is is uh, inexorably pulling us towards a, a future where, you know, the minds of all the workers are controlled and and everything is automated to be perfect and and, uh, you know, there's there's uh, you know we, we we got it we we got all of the optimization that we that we could but. You know, current course and speed. The the things that that you know, when we go into a factory and we we see these these different use cases, uh, it's it's very again, it's much more quotidian than that, and and you know, even even cooler. Um, so I I would say mm-hmm. you know, to I'm going to answer this and answer Utopia and Apocalypse in in uh, two ways. One is that it's you know you're you're marching towards uh, a, a future that could be pretty apocalyptic and sorry you said this but remind <laughs> me of the the scale <laughs> which is apocalypse uh, and 10 which is, uh... 10 is utopia i often mix it up and this is our show so <laughs> one 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 being bad uh, in this case uh, one is apocalypse 10 is utopia okay yeah so you're you're marching towards like a a strong like a low three or something like that but but the stuff i you know if you look at it as a as a curve you're marching. The endpoint is is you know a, a low three, maybe years years away. But you're going to go through a really great time period where you're riding at you know a seven or an eight. <laughs> <laughs> and by the time we get to three, we're all dead. It's, it's yeah, not our problem, man. man. Thank 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 goodness none of us have children, right? <laughs> I like the I like the way you answered that. That is that is an MBA answer right there. But hey, that, that is a that is the the the, the short, medium term, and long term uh, <laughs> curves. You gotta gotta use those uh, those education dollars when uh, when you can. <laughs> so I, I guess I'll jump in and I'll say so. One of the things I've been I've been really struck by by talking with you, Jeff, um, is is the degree to which our manufacturing process. I think it's very easy. Um, to kind of go through the world and see the amount of kind of created infrastructure that we have around us, whether it's the table I'm sitting at right now, the mic I'm speaking into, the car I drive, the the Twizzlers I eat. And (laughs) to see that as sort of like it's been, to, to take that for granted, to take the precision of that, of the, of that material world for granted almost to the point where we we um we kind of romanticize the imprecision of handcraftedness and there's mm. and, and not to not to to dismiss that but but we can only it's it's a little bit like the way that and toby you can correct me on this but it's a little bit like the way the romantics um kind of uh romanticized uh, nature um only after man had subdued it or humans had subdued it um that it's that we kind of we take for granted that our material world is is so expertly crafted around us 
um, not thinking about the fact that, you know, things are being there. It's a little bit more imprecise than we think it is. Things are being extruded and and, um, you know, melted and processed and smelted, I think, is a thing that happens that's not melting. Um, All this other all this stuff is happening before it kind of gets into our lives and we take for granted kind of the the idea that things will just work right and things will just you know be what we want it to be be the thing that we we ordered be the thing that we expected to be that they that they when we order when we measure something and order it online it shows up and it fits through the size that it was supposed to be and i think in the in the anxiety about what can what might happen if we kind of connect all our production to a robot brain um, and our fears about you know all the stuff that might go wrong on that we ignore how much value there is in that so i'm 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 not entirely certain i'm i'm actually weirdly enough maybe less worried about the long term 3 again i might be dead by then um but I'm, I'm, I'm maybe less positive about the short term, and I'm just thinking, you know what? I could see a, I could see this being a solid seven for me in terms of this, this adding this level of refinement to productivity, making things, you know, a, not just less waste, but the thing that kind of gets to people being better, and in some cases, that being a thing that might save lives. I mean, imagine that these product defects maybe happen less often. For example, just one, one thought. Um, you know, that's. I think that's a good thing, and I think the ability to essentially create greater precision in our machines to be able to correct for that automatically, I think is, um, I think that's what machines are for, and I think that's kind of the promise of industry. That, nice. I think I'm, I think I'm going to get on board well, with that. Toby, that, Toby, before yeah, before I think, you jump in, let me let me just revel in in this moment of of uh, having having pulled pulled Darian into the into the IoT uh, Kool Aid before. <laughs> <laughs> oh, it's it's great and it's delicious. <laughs> this Twizzler is extruded in the most efficient possible way. <laughs> well, well, I I don't I don't want to. Snatch your Twizzler uh, from your from your extruder or anything, but uh, I don't know. Like, I, I I I like Jefferson's long three, and I guess part of it's because one of the things we talked about briefly earlier was this kind of ha- what's an industrial revolution? Have there been four of them? Uh, why even lean on this term? I, I, it, part of what seems problematic is that like revolutions are bloody. Generally, you know, like (laughs) something is dying, right? Like something new is Mm -hmm. coming, like an order is changing. uh, And and, and there are like entire versions of the world, you know, in in some ways you talked about this briefly in like the Black Panther episode where it's like, what would we have looked at like if not for colonialism? You know, that like Mm -hmm. these industrial revolutions, they're not, while it may sound like a little bit of like a marketing term, like they... They really were like the whole world kind of convulsing in the face of a new technology. Um, I I do think that this is going to do big things. I think big things are coming. I think we're reaching the sort of apex of a certain form of industrial society. Um, yeah, but that that seems like a three to me. It seems 
in some ways troubling to to be at that place if if we really are sitting on this fourth revolution like what what hmm. ev- everything looks like tomorrow uh and for our children is daunting you know hmm it's interesting to think about what have the casualties been of the first three revolutions such mm-hmm. that there's a uh, the fourth one who's are we are we maybe uh are we maybe as as much as we're selling kind of a Ford Auto revolution, are we understating actually how transformative it's actually going to be? Um, we're trying to have a little bit of our um, our cake and eat it too around this whole process. We want the revolution as far as how transformative it is, but without all the right kind of the the human trauma that comes with it. Yeah, I mean, like the American Revolution without slavery or the genocide of Native Americans like the Russian Revolution without like the mass genocide of an entire sector of society, the French Revolution without like the slaughter of the entire ruling class. Like, do we really want a fourth revolution? Yeah, well, as, as we suggested, maybe it's just a marketing term. Oh, okay, okay. It's just cats. It's just cats. <laughs> <laughs> no, it's, exactly. it's, it's interesting. This is what I love about it. marketing is that it's, it's either transformative or it's, it's facile based upon what we want it to be at any given point. Yeah. It is, it is interesting to think about the sort of the winners and the losers because even in that that kind of scary scenario where you can't work on the machine if you're if you're angry or if you're sad or, or, or whatever you know that's at the you presumably the other thing you can do is is uh, track uh, product defects by how people are you know what the what the emotions on their on their face are Um and while yeah. that's while that's scary from like a factory worker's perspective, I, I would hate, you know, just abstract from an abstract perspective, I would hate to work in that factory. You know, if it if it re- if it results in fewer defects and those defects are in a you know pacemaker or other medical device or something like that, that you could you could suggest that, you know, the other way to look at. Uh, revolutions and, and maybe industrial revolutions because I don't I certainly don't think you should look at some of those examples that you just mentioned this way <laughs> but you know you, you gotta you gotta crack an egg to make an omelet um, so right uh, it, it is interesting though to, to think about there there will definitely be losers in this um, in any revolution and is it worth is it worth the benefits and you're you're hmm. named after Thomas Jefferson aren't you yeah it's a it's a real problem <laughs> <laughs> I was all psyched on it you're, for like 25 years of my life and then I took a class on him and was like man that guy is a clown (laughs) (laughs) and actually that's the same thing happened with the guy who was going to write a book I can't remember his name but he was going to write a book on Thomas Jefferson got into it and said whoa this guy is an ass and then ended up writing that famous (laughs) book on John Adams so I had the the same experience (laughs) Well, thank you, Jefferson, for joining us. We'll have to have you back on um, um, when we're at the height of the eight rather than at the apex, uh, the nadir of the three, Um, (laughs) if we're still living. Um, No, this has been great, really. Thank you so much. Yeah, thanks so much. For joining us no love love talking to you guys this is uh this is always fun and and really looking forward to doing it again well uh have a great one give your uh give our best to uh emily and the kids and we will um we will talk to you soon we'll do